This morning our sermon is going to be about agents of the kingdom. We've been thinking about the kingdom in the church and the the role that the Lord has given us as his church in relationship to the kingdom, which is his uh, saving reign. It's his power as it is brought forth in the world, even as the praise team reminded us, a power that makes broken lives new, a power that ultimately will make all things new. And the church is given the privilege of being caught up in God's grand enterprise of his kingdom of restoring all things. And we've looked at the church as witnesses to the reign of God, the church as evidences or signs that the reign of God is indeed among us. And today we're going to look at the church as agents of the kingdom. I'd like to lead into this by uh, recalling uh, President Biden's inaugural address. I've, I've been interested for a long time in uh, inaugural addresses. They uh, typically very well-polished and well-formed speeches. They have a certain, uh, there's a certain format or there are certain expectations that are present at, in all inaugural addresses that address the, the two great strands of, that have shaped American culture since colonial days. Uh, on the one hand, the, the strand of the city set on a hill, the Puritan vision, and the, on the other hand, you have the libertarian strand that goes back to John Locke and would have been most uh, uh, eloquently articulated by Thomas Jefferson. So there, in inaugural addresses, there is always this uh, American vision, unique vision of, of uh, liberty. Uh, but there is also always this echo of the, the Puritan hope and presidents acknowledge that uh, quite often. In fact, mo very frequently, presidents quote the Bible. And they're not, I mean, they don't thump the Bible. And, and it's only maybe once. But they, ordinarily, they manage to throw in a verse of scripture. And I was, I was appre uh, appreciative that President Biden cited scripture in his inaugural address in a way that was meant to encourage the people. Uh, you can... Uh, I, I won't uh, bore you with the details of what other presidents do with the Bible, but uh, President Biden quoted the Bible in a way that was, I think, directly meant to bring encouragement. So his Bible quote in his inaugural address was from Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And the point he was making, or the encouragement that he was bringing in, in that was that someday, Someday this pandemic will pass and, and we will put this behind us. And his quotation from Psalm 30 was to that effect. But what I found even more interesting uh, from President Biden's inaugural was his quotation from St. Augustine, whom he referred to as a saint of, of his church. And he quoted St. Augustine in order to, uh, to make the point about what people hold in common. Inaugural addresses typically are conciliatory because we have two parties and, and the, the goal is to uh, step towards unity, which is certainly a particular challenge for President Biden in our, our time. But he, he quoted St. Augustine who offered a, a, a definition of a people. 
What is it that makes a people a people? What is it that makes, uh, for example, the American people the American people? And his quotation from Augustine goes like this, a people is a multitude defined by the common objects of their love. I'm pretty sure that um, that would be from St. Augustine's City of God. He didn't give a quotation, and I haven't been able, to, I haven't had time to track it down exactly, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that that would be from the City of God. A people is a multitude defined by the common objects of their love. And then he went on to say, for the American people, the common objects of their love are opportunity, security, liberty, dignity, respect, honor, and truth. And there is, a, there is a level at which I think we would all say amen. The problem, of course, the problem, of course, is that these objects of our love that the president listed, these things that we all hold in common as things that we love, mean radically different things to different people. So that while you can point to these as these are our common loves, what we understand by them is all radically different. So while we may say yes in principle when it comes to practice, uh, we, are, we find ourselves profoundly at odds. So for, take, take just one of those words, liberty. Liberty in the Jeffersonian tradition is, is focused on the individual and it's understood as the freedom of the individual to direct his or her life according to the, the choices that seem, seem best. So uh, liberty is understood as grounded in the autonomy of the individual and it is the, it is the role of government to protect the individual's rights to live life however best it seems to the individual to live it. Liberty in the Puritan tradition means freedom to follow God's way, and they are not the same. Of course, in the colonial period, you had, um, in the Jeffersonian tradition, Jefferson was a strong advocate of, of natural law, so that uh, he... He believed, he, you know, he, his idea was just let people go back to nature and uh, let nature take its course and you run up against natural law and everyone will behave. And so the, the Puritans, they didn't necessarily agree with that, but they, they thought, well, at least they have the backstop of natural law and we can work with these folks. And the Jeffersonians kind of thought similarly about the, the Protestants. But liberty means dramatically different things. And you could, you could fill in the blanks on the rest of them. Um, so though we hold these ideas in common, we disagree profoundly about what these ideas mean. And I agree personally with the theologian and pastor Peter Leithert that democracy cannot save itself. Democracy cannot extract itself from these essential and fundamental disagreements. Democracy cannot build consensus where there is only division. Democracy doesn't have that capability. Democracy can only operate where there exists some fundamental consensus. And as uh, the praise team sang, and as Leithert would, would say, Hosanna, uh, only God can save us. We are, we are a people who gather 
we are the people of God. And we are bound together by certain common objects of our love, which I think can be summarized in the phrase, uh, the kingdom of God. And so uh, today I want to look at um, a couple of texts. The first is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. And we'll be going uh, through the um, latter part of the chapter. But uh, starting out, just notice the reference to the Heavenly Father. Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? One of our common loves is security. Where do you find security? Jesus says, remember your heavenly Father. Uh, remember what he cares for. He cares for uh, the birds. He cares for you. And then the, the passage continues, can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So Jesus moves on here to the theme of clothes. Another thing that people worry about, will I have it? But he raises a more fundamental question about worrying, that uh, same sort of thing that your, your mother or your father might say to you at some point, you know, well, what good does it do? Uh, will worrying change anything? Will worrying make you live longer? Uh, need to find something else to do besides just worry. And then the passage moves on to the, the heart of, of where we'll be focusing in our, our sermon this morning. Jesus says, so don't worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be, will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The echoes of the Sermon on the Mount can be found throughout the New Testament, particularly the, the struggle or the challenge in the Christian life uh, not, to be, not to be drawn into the... Uh, the views that what matter most in life are the things of this life. Jesus said this is what the Gentiles are preoccupied with, Gentile being a synonym in the Sermon on the Mount for, for sinners, for people who don't know God. But you can see something similar in St. Paul's letter, for example, to the Philippians, where he calls upon uh, the, the church there to follow his example. And he speaks about... Uh, the threat that arises with the, even, even within the church about a, a set of values that uh, drives people's actions. So he says in Philippians 3, 17 to 19, joined in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention 
to those who live according to the example that you have in us. For I have often told you and now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. So he's just he's warning them against uh, people who by their example in life show that they, they have lost the way, as it were, their focus is on earthly things. By contrast, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, my dearly loved and longed-for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. St. Paul references that we belong to another kingdom. We have citizenship elsewhere, and that uh, at the heart of our citizenship is our king, who not only provides for uh, our daily needs in this world, but who... uh, holds our very lives and that he will he will raise our bodies he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body so there is a uh, just as the lord jesus urged his followers to seek the kingdom first saint paul has the same the very same message and encourages us to stand fast in our faith in the lord because uh, our citizenship is in heaven What does it mean then to be an agent of the kingdom? Agents act on behalf of someone else or some other entity. We, we are called to be witnesses to the kingdom. We are called to be signs of the kingdom. And though uh, being agents is not something that's utterly uh, different, it is to remind ourselves that we act on behalf of the king to bring the blessings of his grace to bear in people's lives. Uh, And I'm I'm going to go back again to the the opening praise song that in your kingdom broken lives are made new. How does that happen? Well, it it happens because of the grace of God. It happens because of the power of the Holy Spirit. It happens because of the the virtue and power of the cross of Christ. But most often it happens because some Christian or group of Christians get involved in, in a broken person's life and are, the, uh, uh, are used by the Lord uh, to be instruments of his grace, to share, as it were, the manifold grace of God that restores people's lives. So that's what it means uh, to be an agent, that the Lord is pleased to use us and to act through us. I'm sure most of you know someone who is an agent, or at least have run into an agent. If you have insurance, probably you got it from an agent who represents the insurance company and its benefits for you. When, uh, when I was in high school, one of my friend's fathers uh, was an FBI agent. And this was always a source of uh, amazement and wonder to me that why in the world we needed an FBI agent out uh, in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Uh, where I, I grew up, I could not fathom it that, you know, weren't a, what, uh, you know, wasn't the sheriff and his deputies enough to keep order. But there he was, and 
he had the, you know, he had the, uh, he always wore a suit and he had the badge and he had, you could tell he had a, a sidearm inside his suit coat. But uh, one day he actually came to visit our house. And this was a terrible shock to me because I knew who he was and I couldn't imagine what he needed with us. But yeah, at the time my, my brother was in the army and it turned out for some aspect of his work he needed a particular security clearance. So I guess that was back before you could, you know, type people into the internet and get a background check. So Homer, which was his name, he came and visited my parents, and I, I think just to figure out whether or not they were communist sympathizers and uh, so on. And uh, all went well, and my brother was able to continue to do his work. Agents works on behalf of the government to promote the the best interests of of the. Uh, the government. As agents, we are called upon to seek the kingdom of God. And this seeking of the kingdom of God takes us in two directions. It takes us in, in an outward direction, and it also takes us in an inward direction. What is the outward intent of seeking the kingdom? Because this, this exhortation to seek the kingdom is, is one that it can be a little bit ambiguous, and, and you might say that I'm, I'm punting to say that it's both, but in, indeed it is both. So if you, were, if you were to ask, how would that have sounded in the ears of those who heard Jesus, where Jesus says, I want you to seek something, I want you to seek the kingdom, and the kingdom's righteousness, I think uh, for most of his hearers, they would have thought deeply into the Old Testament, they would have thought, for example, of some of the, uh, the wisdom psalms, Psalm 34. Any of you want to live a long life and see good days? Refrain your lips from lies and, and your tongue from speaking evil. Depart from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. Or Psalm 37, a psalm that's entirely about not worrying, especially not worrying about the wicked. And it's, you know, it says, the Lord will take care of the wicked, but you focus on doing what is right. Seek to do good. Turn away from evil. And perhaps uh, no one would have come to mind more vividly than, than the prophet Amos. I'd like to read a portion from Amos chapter 5, where seeking is uh, tied in first to seeking the Lord and then to seeking a particular way of life. So, Amos chapter 5, verse 4, For the Lord says to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. And repeats that, verse 6, Seek the Lord and live. But then you get down to uh, verse 14, after the prophet has spelled out the many evils of the people. He says, Seek good and not evil so that you may live. Seek the Lord that you may live. Seek the Lord that you may live. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And the Lord, the God of armies, will be with you, as you have claimed. So to seek, to seek good means to invest your life in that. If, if, there, is, if there is wrong, if, if there are, are widows being neglected, if there are orphans who are out there starving, if there are people who are being deprived of their rights, seek, seek justice, seek righteousness. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on uh, seeking first the kingdom, and that was uh, 
he, when he addressed the question of what does it mean to seek righteousness, he said, our, you know, people, their tendency for us is to, to think of the imputed righteousness of Christ. He said, well, I don't think that's what that's about. And I think he was right in a certain respect. And he, he just listed all of these things. He says, are, are you, uh, do you want to see people become more truthful? I'm with you on that. And, and it's quite a, an eloquent sermon where he just lists all of these areas where uh, wrongs need to be righted. And he says, if, if that's what you're with, that's where you're for, if that's what you're for, I'm with you in that. That's, that's what it means to seek the kingdom. If we think about the Sermon on the Mount, if we think about the Beatitudes, we recognize that that's, that's where we start. We start among the poor. We start among the mourning. That's where the kingdom of God uh, lands with, the, with both feet on the ground. To seek to intervene uh, on behalf of those who are uh, treated unfairly. But as agents uh, in the world, we are authorized, if you ask more specifically uh, what this looks like, it is we are authorized to act in Jesus' name. So just as, just as the insurance agent is authorized to act in the name of the insurance company, just as the FBI agent is offer, authorized to act in the name of the United States government, we as agents of the kingdom are authorized to act in Jesus' name. What are, the, what are some of the things that we get to do in Jesus' name? Uh, all three of the synopti, all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get to welcome a little child. We get to welcome a little child in Jesus' name, which should be a reminder to us that, um, that we are not in it for the headlines and that some of the things that we do will fly, uh, fly under the radar and yet are significant because uh, those that the world would consider not so important are deeply loved of the Lord Jesus. And the little uh, children weren't viewed in the same way in Jesus' day as they uh, are in ours. They didn't really, you know, family values wasn't something that they talked about a lot back then. Um, children, you know, out of sight, it's where they belonged. Jesus welcomed them, said, receive the kingdom like a little child. We are allowed to gather in Jesus' name, Matthew 18. So Matthew 18, verse 5, whoever welcomes a little child in my name welcomes me. Matthew 18, 20, two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among you. We're, we're privileged as agents of the kingdom to gather in his name and to, uh, to consider the the purity of the movement, to consider the call of the movement, that we are authorized to meet together in his name, knowing that when, he do that, he, that when we do that, he promises to be with us. We are authorized to leave everything for the sake of his name, Matthew 19, verse 29. And of course, in John chapter 14 through 16, we are authorized to pray in Jesus' name. And it is because of, of the Lord Jesus that we are able to pray our Father. We pray in his name. So these are just a few of the things, and I, I put them out there to send your thoughts down a particular path, and, and you can continue to pursue that path if you like. The scope and the manner and the focus of our agency is set forth in the Beatitudes. I mentioned that we, uh, 
As agents of the kingdom, we land among the poor and among the mourning. Uh, the manner of our agency, meekness, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the hungry for righteousness. So that there's a certain passion that we bring to our agency. Uh, we long to see this come. Uh, we are peacemakers. Those, those point to the, the manner uh, of our agency, the way we are to conduct ourselves and engage the world. Uh, it's, it is in this way that we serve the king. Agency can even mean to do mighty works. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, uh, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Many in that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works? And Jesus replies, depart, I don't know you. But there are those, and it is given in the name of Christ to do great things, mighty things, miraculous things. That's part of the agency but it reminds us of the other dimension of seeking the kingdom. It's not just enough. It's not just enough to be uh, seeking the kingdom in its outward manifestations. There is a seeking of the kingdom that is inward because the, uh, there is another beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So that seeking the kingdom, especially in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, follows upon uh, accept your righteousness, exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom. And it, uh, the Sermon on the Mount kind of wraps up on not everyone who says to me will enter the kingdom. Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. We're taught to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, to be an agent of the kingdom means that we're on board with that. We, we are committed to doing the will of God. As Jesus described, a righteousness that would exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, it's a, a righteousness that goes to the heart, a righteousness that uh, understands that uh, being angry with someone and just letting that anger fester is a, a violation of the commandment, you shall not kill, that it's, it's the same, it's part of a continuum. Or the lust in the heart, Adultery in the heart is just as offensive in, in God's sight, is just as contrary to the will of, of the Father as, uh, as the deed in practice. Of course, here, here again, there is a, a tend, we tend to pull away from that, or our, our, our next move is, I cannot, I cannot be that righteous. You know, I will, I will always struggle with anger. I will always struggle with, with lust. Thank God for the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And, and amen to that. Amen to that. There is, there is a, a convicting word there. But the, the point is not just to say, well, you need a righteousness better than the scribes and Pharisees. You need a righteousness that you're not capable of. You need a righteousness that's a free gift of God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it... It cannot stop there. St. Paul, the, the great champion of righteousness by faith, uh, reminds us that there are all sorts of ways of living 
such that if, if that's the way you live, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And likewise, we were exhorted to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So that part of seeking the kingdom is seeking to be in, in our lives, though we do not attain this perfectly, and, and though we um, despair uh, over uh, our shortcomings, that, that all the same, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. All the same, we are to press on after uh, a deeper conformity to the character of Christ. After all, if, if we represent him, if we are his agents, if we act in his name, what could be more important than that there should be some uh, movement in our own most inward being and, and in our outward uh, behavior as a result of that that shows the character of the one that we represent. Well, it all goes back to love. And so the, the challenge for us is not just, um, well, I have to try really hard. Uh, one, uh, for quite a number of years, I was in the Reformed Church in America, and there was a standard joke in the Reformed Church in America that, that every sermon had three points. God is good. You're bad. You need to try harder. <laughs> so... That's not a very, in, 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 and it was meant in, in jest, of course, but there is, um, just trying harder will not take us very far. There has to be something that drives us in that, and, and it can't be anything less than something that we love. It has to be our love. President Biden reminds us that what brings us together as a people are the things that we love. How do we nurture uh, our love for the kingdom? Now, I'll close with uh, a quote from a fellow James K.A. Smith in his book, Desiring the Kingdom. Uh, how do we bring this about? Well, we, we can show up every, every Sunday. Even if it's online, we can show up because just listening, joining in the singing, joining in the prayers, that's one of the things that forms our love. Our nations know how to form loves. Uh, Next Sunday is Super Bowl. You know, they're going to do the same thing that they do every time. They're going to sing the same old song. And people are going to stand and, you know, men will take off their hats and people will put their hands over their hearts. And, uh, of course, maybe jets will fly over. It doesn't always happen at the high school ball game, but it happens at the Super Bowl. And it's, there, is a, there is a ritual. There is... Certain practices that you just keep doing over and over and over again and, and it seeps into your hearts. Nations and states get that. And in the kingdom, we need to get that too. So Smith says, one of the most crucial things to appreciate about Christian formation is that it happens over time. It is not fostered by events or experiences. Real formation cannot be effected by actions that are merely episodic. In other words, just from time to time. There must be a rhythm and a regularity to formative practices in order for them to sink in, in order for them to seep into our heart and begin to be effectively inscribed in who we are, directing our passion to the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for how much you love us. 
We thank you for the way you have put your love for us beyond all doubt in the wonderful gift of the Savior's death on our behalf, the depths of his love poured out on the cross. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, continue to kindle the passion in our hearts for your kingdom, for the vision of all things new, for broken lives being restored. And we pray that as we gather week by week, that that would seep deep into our bones and into the bones and uh, into the hearts and lives of our children and our children's children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.